You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. We expected that Governor Faubus would say something like, okay, I'm not for integration, this is the law, let's follow it. Instead, he said, if those... Negro children come to our school, blood will run in the streets. Little Rock Nine member Melba Patillo Beals today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. It's Black History Month in the U.S., so each week this month here on Now I've Heard Everything, we'll be highlighting an interview from my archive with an important, influential figure in African American history. Imagine a small group of high school students needing armed United States military just to get into school. Well, in September of 1957, nine African-American students, the first to enroll at Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, were accompanied by soldiers ordered to protect them by President Dwight Eisenhower. They became known from that day as the Little Rock Nine. Among them that day was 15-year-old Melba Patillo, later Melba Patillo Beals. Somehow, she and the rest of the Little Rock Nine managed to escape any serious physical harm. I first met her in 1994 when she wrote a memoir of her experience called Warriors Don't Cry. So here now, from 1994, Melba Patillo Beals. Do you meet people, perhaps young people, who have no conception of what this battle meant? No concept. And uh, I meet people all the time who just don't know what I'm talking about. And that is one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, because here I gave a year of my life, two years really, eight other people did so. And so many people died, died, gave their lives for, for the integration of Little Rock Central High School. Look how it disturbed the lives of so many people. And so I, I thought, I cannot leave this planet this moment, make my little transition to the great beyond without leaving word of this behind, just some little word of my human pain. So everybody will know that this is not a good thing. It's a compelling story that you tell. Does it, does it feel like it's been, well, 30, 37, 38 years ago now? Not really. See, in my mind, it's it's now, kind of. And one of the things that, that helped me was writing this book. Now the story is between the pages of my book. It used to be in my heart all the time, you see. And so this has been a wonderful experience for me to do this. Very difficult. I cried for a couple of years because I'd never cried when it really happened. Not enough. And so uh, it was very difficult to write this book. Is there something therapeutic about telling the story? Yes, because... Um, by telling it, I got to look in all the dark corners that existed in me that I hadn't looked in before, and I could expose light there. So it was like dusting beneath the bed and behind the refrigerator, and it was really great for my heart because I felt so much lighter and so much more at peace and, and you know, joyous about life once I'd written that book. So it's, it's been a great task for me. It, it did also occur to me that many of us, even after we're adults and should know better, we still have that civics class view of how the government and society works. The Supreme Court makes a ruling, boom, society's changed tomorrow. You know, you see, having that pristine view of how society's supposed to work, the Supreme Court has decreed it so, the governor will follow the rules, is how we got into deep trouble. Because we expected that Governor Faubus would say something like, okay, I'm not for integration, this is the law, let's follow it. Instead, he said, if those Negro children come to our school, uh, blood will run in the streets of Arkansas and therefore set a tone for people to be combative in terms of their acceptance of us. 
We never accepted that uh, we couldn't go to the school. We never expected that we would be met by a mob when we went there. But he set the tone for that mob, you see. And so when we arrived at school that first day, we were greeted by this host of people. And at first we only heard the noise as we were walking up towards the school because we thought, well, what's going on? You know, well, maybe, maybe they're having a big event up there. You know? We never dreamed. Never in our wildest dreams do we think. Such a fuss being made over just school kids. Just us, just little old nine us. Little 15-year-olds, little innocent babies. We weren't going to hurt anybody. We weren't going to hit. We'd been taught all our lives not to hit. That was one of the first things on the planet I was taught. Don't hit. And, and don't be abusive. So we were not armed for anything. But you couldn't comprehend at that point your, your greater constitutional significance. Uh, not at all. We knew the importance of, of our decision to want to go to that school. But really not until President Eisenhower later on sent the troops. He warned the mobs to quit, quit, to disperse, and they didn't do it. And so as we made our third effort to go to school, we made it under the protection of the 101st Airborne Division, who had come over that Little Rock Bridge. I want to tell you, the lights of those Jeeps and those guys coming into that city thrilled me like nothing else ever will. Because in the interim, between the first day we went to that school and the second day we went back to that school, having gone to the Supreme Court in the meantime, many blacks had been beat up in the city. Our house was being threatened. And what you need to remember here is that in, in the South, in Little Rock, at that point, it wasn't like, oh, have a problem, dial the police. No, if you were black in that city and you dial the police, they're going to give you a bigger problem. <laughs> they're going to come and do what the other guy didn't do to you. So it wasn't about we had any city protection. We were isolated, alone, by ourselves, on our own. And so for those troopers to come in there, I want to tell you, it was a thrill like no other. There must be so many sights and sounds and maybe even smells that that remind you, that will take you when you see or hear or smell something that takes you instantly back That's to that right. time. That's right. I can see a certain face, hear a certain voice. Um, I think the thing most prominent is helicopters. Because when we went to school at Central High School, uh, I rode in a station wagon, and behind me was a Jeep with a turret gun. In front of me was a Jeep with a turret gun, and the soldiers were riding in there with their armed weapons. And then um, above us was a helicopter. And so now, you know, when I hear a helicopter sometimes, my mind goes snap. And I think, oh, my goodness, you know. But then, then it's okay, you know, it's fine. But that is something that makes me recall, you know, those times. Do you look back on that time now and marvel just a little bit that none of you did get hurt or killed? Oh, my goodness. Uh, they came and interviewed me for Eyes on the Prize uh, about three or four years ago. But, you know, before I could look at it. I couldn't look at the at the movie. And when I could finally look at the film of those mobs and I saw this car drive up and these sweet, young, innocent teenagers are dropped off at the side of the school with this mob raging, I, I just am astounded, number one, at the adults thinking in order to do that, and number two, astounded that we lived through it. And yet, I know that we could not have done anything else. We were inoxorably on this track, careening down this track, Fate designed the plan, and we were just members of this little plan that was moving ahead, you see, without our consent and sometimes. Because it wasn't like we got up every morning and said, aha, we're going to school today. We're going to be heroes and heroines. We're going to get ourselves sprayed with acid, ink, and kicked 
you know, dump down flights of stairs. We're going to really just go for it. It wasn't like that at all. It was like every single day I thought, tomorrow it will be better. This is only happening today, and it's going to get better soon. We just have to hope and pray, and I prayed really hard. I thought, this will be fine, you know. They'll stop tomorrow. Tomorrow they will see who I am as soon as they see who I am. I love the Lord. I polish my saddle shoes. You know, I comb my ponytail. I have a new dress my grandmother made. I'm going to be just fine, and they're going to know it, see. And that's what kept me going was that faith in humanity, which, by the way, has been borne out, you know, by the lovely people, white people I have met since, by the lovely white people who assisted us even during that time. Quakers came in and helped us establish safe houses. They taught us nonviolent techniques. They uh, tried to negotiate some sort of settlement. Many people came to help, many people who are not people of color. So certainly, you know, uh, since that time, my faith has been born out. After this short break, Melba Patillo Beals describes the apartheid of her childhood. Now back to my 1994 interview with Melba Patillo Beals. Does it dismay you, though, when you hear reports? I saw something on The Wire just the other day to the effect that the Topeka schools, where Brown versus Board of Education started, still haven't met all the requirements of the, uh, that original desegregation oh, order. Does it dismay me when I see how far we've come? You bet it does. I mean, I want. I thought it would be faster than this. On the other hand, I'm not. I see the glass half full. I'm not one of those people that, that says, okay, we haven't done it up to now, we can't do it. You must remember, in my lifetime, I lived under apartheid as a child. White folks told me where to go potty, when to go, how to eat, where to eat, where to walk, where to go to school. No, you can't go to that restaurant. You can't have a theater. When I was a little girl, my grandma would take me downtown, and she'd say, lower your eyes, look down, if we were walking towards white people. Because remember, Emma Till got killed for looking a white woman in the eye. And so we, we didn't look white people in the eye. And if you were walking down a path, grandmother or mother would step off the path into the mud, let the white people walk by. So I came along, you know, I've come a long ways. I'm not one of these people who's saying, woe is me. Hey, folks, I'm very pleased to have come this far. And I have, a, you know, total faith that we can go farther. We just need commitment to integration. We need the people in power, the people in possession of resources, to see how segregation doesn't work for any of us. See, integration is not about a black person's desire to sit next to a white person feeling that that white person will endow them with some sort of magic like dust. Integration is about the sharing of opportunity, economic opportunity. That's what it really is. That's the bottom line of it. And everybody wants to do a tap dance around that, see. That's what we're really talking about. And, and, and when the people in power with the money see that, they can't have those great houses on the hill forever safe if things aren't shared and there's egress to the mainstream. See, the Crips and the Bloods and all of the gangs and some of the violence that we have going on now can be directly attributed to a failure to include everybody. You know, folks got excluded from the mainstream, from Wall Street. They started their own little cottage industries selling dope. And, and, a, and what accompanies selling drugs is all this violence and everything. So you can alienate folks all you want for a long period of time. It's like playing with a lion on your front steps and calling it a putty cat. It ain't a putty cat. It's going to get up one day, and it's going to want your arm and your leg instead of that little piece of meat you throw at it. So, you know, it's not about integration. See, integrating schools is a little slice of the pie. 
And I do not fault Brown versus the people because Brown was the law, the passage of that law abated apartheid in this country. Until then, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson, you could say that separate was equal. And we all know that when separate involves people of color, it is never equal, is it? It's always the shanty down the street, the bathroom way down the hall across the valley through the dale, right? So what Brown did was say it's illegal to do that. Separate is not equal. So Brown was like a key. It said, here, folks, here's, here's a key and here's a map. And then it was up to the federal judges to implement. And guess what? It was up to you and me and everybody to implement. So I uh, know... I don't lament, you know, when there's a commitment on all of our parts to working out an integrated, loving society where I appreciate who you are, I appreciate who you worship, I appreciate the way you live, and you appreciate how I live, and we take what's good from each of that and we share it, and I can hug your differentness, then we'll be okay. Because it is my contention that we cannot survive in this country, on this planet, without, you know, hugging each other. We're inoxibly connected, guys. You know, we've got to fight the battles together. So all those people, you know, black people alike now, who are saying, let's go off and have separate schools, it just means it's going to take longer to make everything work. I'm really dismayed by some of the southern schools who are saying, uh, listen, we're going back to neighborhood schools. Okay, folks, that's what the guys in white sheets said. We're, we need neighborhood schools. Who is in that neighborhood? Not moi. And not folks that look like moi. So it means you're talking about white neighborhoods, white schools. And, of course, we have that ugly, ugly thing in Texas, the Rodriguez case, which said, number one, that going to school is a privilege, not a right. And number two, that you don't have to equalize the wealth spent on schools in various districts. So, in effect, you know, people of, of, of moneyed means, people of means can live in a certain area. They can make those schools wonderful. And they cannot include the people of color uh, down the block who are in a different district, you see. So go for the separate schools, all these people who are talking about. I always ask them to play that scenario out. So you got separate schools, so now what? Separate high schools, so now what? Separate colleges? When you graduate, what are you going to do for a living? How are you going to get along with people who are different from you are? From, you know, how are you going to get along with those people who are different from who you are? And, and, and listen, this year I did three satyrs. You know, I do the High Holy Days every year, and by being a good Jew, I'm a better Christian. You know, what about the richness of people who are different from you? There's a richness in the way you live your life that I want to know about and share. So, uh, yes, I'm, I, I'm disgruntled, but that doesn't mean I'm going to stop. That doesn't mean I don't have faith. I mean, I think we all have to move forward, but that we just have to commit ourselves and understand that integrating schools, my sweet, is only a little slice of the pie. There's a big pie out there. An economic pie. Melba Patillo Beals is 80 years old now. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. And you can find easy Amazon links to Melba Patillo Beals' books at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at heardeverything.com, be sure and listen to my interview with two other towering figures in the civil rights movement, my 1998 interview with Congressman John Lewis. When I was growing up, I saw those signs that said white men, colored men, White women, colored women, white waiting, colored waiting. I saw segregation. I saw racial discrimination. But because of the civil rights movement, those signs came tumbling down. And those signs were never, 
ever be seen again. And my 1992 conversation with Rosa Parks. He was very youthful, and I'm surprised that such a young person was the pastor of that church in uh, Montgomery. And he was quite friendly, and he was very eloquent. And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, as the 2022 Winter Olympics get underway in China, we'll revisit my interview with a former Olympic champion who for many years had to endure the sad nickname the Heartbreak Kid until finally his triumphant win for the gold. My 1994 interview with speed skating champion Dan Jansen. I have the one gold medal. There's no better feeling. And that's the other thing. A lot of people think that you have to have that to top off your career. Not necessarily true. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.